Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 52, Into the Breach, Part 4, Poet's Corner. Up until this point, we've been concerning ourselves with the British efforts at the north end of the Somme front. Beginning in the centre with 10th Corps' attack on Teepval, we've seen the British be met with failure. In the grisly scenes which played out near the villages of Gumcor, Serre, Beaumont-Hamel, Oviers, and La Boiselle, have come to define popular perceptions about the battle. Over a century later, these unassuming villages have come to symbolize the terrible slaughter of that first day, evoking images of carnage and the macabre, which are potent reminders to the horrors of war. What we've seen so far is in many ways the infamous side of the Somme battle. The battlefields east of Albert remain the go-to spot for battlefield tourists, and certainly by visiting locations like Newfoundland Park and the Teepfound Memorial, it is easy to walk away believing the entire campaign was an inexcusable waste. It is difficult to find spots of positivity, and no one who walks among the graves can clear his or her mind of emotion. The sheer numbers of military cemeteries, not to mention the 10,000 tombstones marked July 1, 1916, is a powerful testament to the senselessness of the endeavor. But as we depart from the northern front and descend into the southern section, the notion that nothing went right on that opening day will begin to crack. Just south of the Albert-Bapaume Road, the British front line bends horizontally to the east, running parallel to the Somme until reaching the small village of Maricor. The elbow of this L-shaped line is where Allied fortunes would begin to shift. Along this southern axis, British efforts would yield vastly different results. Although the fighting was no less severe, the Anglo-French army stationed there were able to achieve remarkable success. British forces would liberate the villages of Mametz and Montauban by the end of the day, while the French 6th Army advanced 2 kilometers by mid-afternoon, capturing 5,200 German prisoners in the process. By nightfall, those who fought in the southern battles were endowed with a renewed sense of optimism. Looking out from the newly captured positions, they could see vast open fields ripe for the taking. In the south, it looked as though the big push would play out as planned after all. To begin our discussion of events in the south, we need to reorientate ourselves just a bit. If you look at the map I posted to the website, you'll see how the British forces were organized. At the elbow of the L was Henry Horne's 15th Corps, whose objectives for July the 1st were to capture the villages of Fry Corps and Mametz. This meant that 15th Corps would have to attack from adjacent fronts, Fry Corps from the east and northward towards Mametz. This slight change of direction makes this a tricky battle to follow, so what I've done is isolated the key events and figures so we don't get bogged down in the small details. Still, I recommend you keep the map ready because there are a lot of nooks and crannies which will play an important role, and knowing where these locations are will make things much more palatable. To begin, we should start with a bit of context. The villages of Freikor and Mametz have been ill-served by history. The battlefield sees only a fraction of the tourism, having been overshadowed by the ghastly events in the north. However, the surrounding upland is perhaps best known for giving rise to one of the most memorable voices to emerge from the Great War, the poet and writer Siegfried Sassoon. 
On July the 1st, the 29-year-old Sassoon was serving with the 1st Royal Welch Fusiliers, a reserve battalion stationed just south of Freikorps. While Sassoon did not take part in the July 1st attack, he watched the battle unfold from a vantage point in the British trenches. His impressions were later recorded into his post-war novel, Memoirs of an Infantry Officer, which contains some of the most vivid descriptions of the battle, so we'll be seeing what Sassoon has to say a bit later. Getting back to ground level, the battlefield around Freikorps and Mametz offered certain advantages, and in the rarest of examples, these advantages favored the Allies. Freikorps was located in a significant German salient, laying at the apex of the British line, which ran unbroken from Serre in a southerly direction. Upon reaching the outskirts of Freikorps, the line hooked eastwards, heading off to Mametz and beyond. Therefore, Freikorps was crucial to the integrity of the German defenses, and the commander of 15th Corps, Sir Henry Horn, was keen on avoiding a direct assault. If the tactical decisions of 4th Army's Corps commanders, namely Elmer Hunter Weston, Thomas Moreland, and William Pulteney, can be ridiculed for being unimaginative and short-sighted, the same cannot be said for the 15th Corps commanding officer, Sir Henry S. Horn. Henry Sinclair Horn appreciated the difficulty of attacking a fortified salient. Born on February the 19th, 1861, into the Scottish landed gentry at Caithness, Henry Horn was, by his own design, a shadowy figure. He has gone down in history as the Silent General, for it was rumored that he instructed his wife to burn his personal papers upon her death in 1946. Horn himself had passed away 20 years earlier in August 1929. Fortunately, this rumor turned out to be false. His documents were later found in the care of his daughters, who in turn donated them to the Imperial War Museum in 1997. Since then, historians have been able to paint a clearer picture of Henry Horn, culminating with Don Farr's 2007 biography, appropriately titled The Silent General. What makes Henry Horn an interesting figure was that he was one of the few British generals not to come up through the cavalry. Horn had cut his teeth in the Royal Artillery, having chosen this career path when he first joined the army in 1878. As an artillery commander, he gained Haig's attention during the Boer War of 1899. Haig was so impressed with Horn that he took him on as a protege, giving him command of 15th Corps in March of 1916. Horn quickly gained a reputation as an entirely straightforward and efficient officer, who took an innovative approach to battlefield tactics. In planning his assault on Freikorps and Mametz, Horn was his usual meticulous self. He was convinced that the German defenses cannot be breached by conventional means. A costly raid on the night of June 2nd seems to have been the tipping point. That night, 64 men from the 22nd Manchesters had gone out to gauge the strength of the defenses near Freikorps. As they approached the village, the Germans were alerted to their presence and sprayed them with machine gun fire. From the 64 men, 31 became casualties, including all four officers, two of whom were killed in action. Afterwards, Horn was adamant that a direct assault be avoided at all costs. Being an artilleryman, Horn knew the only way to ensure the safety of the infantry was to knock out the German batteries. The problem was, there was no way to guarantee the enemy guns had been neutralized, so Horn was forced to think outside the box. In this respect, Horn benefited from having an outstanding gunnery officer, 
Brigadier General Ernst Alexander, and together, the two men set out to work developing a solution. The result of their labors was an improved form of barrage, known as the Drifting Barrage, a new technique which would eventually expand into its better-known nomenclature, the Creeping Barrage. For now, the Drifting Barrage was something different. Instead of concentrating his firepower on a specific target, Horn's batteries would pursue a more organic process. In a Drifting Barrage, the guns would be required to fire almost non-stop, then, after a minute had passed, they would lift off their target and begin hitting a new line of targets further back. For example, if the main target was the German front line, the guns would concentrate there for the first minute, before lifting and redirecting their fire on the second or third line trenches. This offered certain advantages. First, it provided the infantry with better gun support, and second, it had a better chance to suppress the German reserves. Since it was not focused on one target, it could be spread over a wider area, working to fool the Germans into thinking the bombardment had passed. The Germans, you see, often situated machine gun posts in the areas between the trench lines, precisely because they would be safe from a barrage that lifted from trench to trench. Horn and Alexander thus decided the best way to counter this was to hit the trench lines first, but then increase the range of the artillery by 50 meters every 90 seconds starting back at the first objective. This was called a search back. So as a brief example, the guns would fire on the first line trench, followed by the second and third. But once complete, the guns would then search back to the first trench and begin the 50 meter drifts, rolling towards the rear areas at 90 second intervals, thus mopping up anything left in between. If this sounds an awful lot like a creeping barrage, then you are correct in thinking that. The big difference between a drift and creep was that a creeping barrage began just in front of the advancing infantry, while the drifting barrage started at the intended target. We'll have time to go into these specific details later in the podcast, but I think that's a good starting point for now. To accommodate the artillery plan, infantry tactics had to be adjusted as well. For this, 15th Corps adopted one of the more innovative and complex actions of July the 1st. Horn was well aware of the exceptional strength of the German defenses. Aerial photographs showed a maze of fire and communication trenches, which extended back 1,200 meters. The German front line also zigzagged along its perimeter, creating salients and flanks which were easily defendable. Each of these nooks operated like its own self-contained fortress capable of all-around defense. The dugouts here were two stories deep, with beds and even electricity. One officer's dugout even had a piano brought in from the Metz. There were also two key strongholds set back from the front line. The first was a triangular system which consisted of Fritsch Trench, Railway Trench, and Crucifix Trench. This position was some 1,000 meters behind Freikorps. The second stronghold was a lattice of trench networks guarding the approach to Mehmet's Wood, which was the objective of 7th Division. Although Horn respected these defenses, he was aware of their weakness. Many of the German forts had not yet been completed. The bunkers at Mehmet's were without carapace, and the dugouts connecting the various networks around Freikorps had yet to be reinforced. Without the rear areas, the German 28th Reserve Division had been forced to keep their reserves closer to the front, where shelter was at a premium. With this unique advantage in mind, 
Horn and his divisional commanders came up with an ambitious assault plan. You'll see that I provided a general overview of it on the map. Since Freikorps was exposed on a right-angled spur on the German line, this allowed 15th Corps a bit of flexibility. With his two divisions, the 21st and 7th, the plan was to capture the salient through a three-pronged assault, divided into two distinct phases. Like we saw at Gum Corps, the plan was to pinch off the salient by attacking the flanks. As the left arm of the pincer, the 21st Division was to attack the area north of the village. 21st Division would split its brigades into two columns. The left-hand brigade would drive north of Freikorps, capture the dominating high ground of Freikorps Spur, and then link up in the wooded area behind the village, identified on the map as Bottom Wood. Meanwhile, on the southern flank, the 7th Division would attack on opposite sides of Mametz. The right brigade of 7th Division would then continue to Bottom Wood and link up with the units of the 21st Division, while the left brigade would drive towards Willow Stream, which conveniently ran between the two villages. When the jaws of the pincers closed, it was hoped that this would isolate the German defenders and prevent the flow of reinforcements from reaching the area. This marked the end of Phase 1. Phase 2 of the attack would not commence until later in the afternoon. This next phase consisted of one movement, a direct assault on Freikorps itself. This task was given to the 21st Division's 50th Brigade, which was actually on loan from the 17th Division, but we won't go into the details surrounding that. 50th Brigade consisted of the 7th Green Howards in King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, two army battalions which had just arrived at Freikorps a few weeks prior. The interesting thing about Phase 2 was that it was not set to a schedule. Unlike at Serre or Tiepval, where reinforcements were organized according to a schedule, the Green Howards in Yorkshire's would only attack on the order being given. Until then, they were to remain in their trenches and observe the flow of battle as best they could. Furthermore, the assault was to be assisted by a number of underground mines. There were a total of nine mines detonated along the Freikorps Mamet salient, six at Mamets and three at Freikorps. We won't go into detail about each one, but the mines at Freikorps do deserve special mention. To the north of Freikorps, opposite 50th Brigade, there existed an area known as the Tambor, named after the French word for drum. The Tambor area was a difficult one. The opposing lines were very close together, and many small mines had been detonated. It is easily comparable to what we saw with the Glory Hole last episode. What made the Tambor particularly dangerous was a pronounced kink in the German trench, which allowed them to fire into the British right flank, which was occupied by the 10th West Yorks, part of the King's own Yorkshires. At the Tambor, Royal Engineers had prepared three medium-sized mines, packed closely together to explode just short of the German line, partly to crush the defenders, but mainly to throw up lips to shield the infantry from enemy fire coming from Freikorps. Collectively, these three mines amounted to almost 23,000 kilograms of aminol. Once detonated, the craters left behind would become known as the Triple Tambor, perhaps the best recognized location of the Freikorps Mamets battlefield. Certainly, 15th Corps did take an unorthodox approach 
especially when compared to the other British corps that morning. But as we'll now see, the results were decidedly mixed. The attack on Mametz would progress smoothly, but events at Freikorps were near disastrous. At 7.28am, the triple tambour mines were detonated, along with the six smaller mines in front of Mametz. In addition to these mines, the week-long shelling had produced significant results. Mametz was little more than a pile of bricks and rubble, while many of the German guns had been destroyed. So many guns had been put out of action that as the day unfolded, the Germans were unable to prevent the flow of British reinforcements, which had been central to their successful defenses in the north. On the Freikorps spur above the village, the Germans suffered heavily. One company of the 110th Reserve Regiment had been reduced to just 80 men from an original 200. Still, there were a few bad omens. One of the tambour mines had not detonated, as its fuse had become damp. This meant that the 10th West Yorks would be advancing without cover on their right flank. Additionally, there was a crucial misstep in the artillery's organization. The drifting barrage was not extended to covering no man's land, so the attacking infantry drew no benefit from the idea as they crossed between opposing lines. At 7.28am, the men of the 9th and 10th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry, part of 64th Brigade due north of Freikorps, crept out into no man's land and took up scratch positions in a new line of craters purposely created by the British gunners. Once the shelling lifted, the Battle of Freikorps-Mametz was underway. In some places, the British found the German wire to be well cut, and were able to overrun the first trenches. The 64th Brigade, which you'll see on the map was positioned adjacent to the 34th Division, had fought their way eastwards to the sunken lane. By 8am, the Yorkshires had consolidated their holdings and were marshalling for an attack on Crucifix Trench, just due east from the sunken lane. In the meantime, 64th's right-hand battalions, the 10th Green Howards and 1st Lincolns, were hit by German machine guns firing from Freikorps Cemetery. These battalions suffered heavy casualties, but were able to push through and link up with the Yorkshires at the sunken lane. The Yorkshires, Lincolns, and Green Howards mingled into a formidable force, which helped thrust the advance north of the village. However, the Center Brigade soon hit a snag. Here, the 63rd Brigade had attacked 800 meters north of the Tambor position. 63rd Brigade had three battalions, all of which were involved. The 8th Somerset Light Infantry, the 4th Middlesex, and the 10th West Yorks. The Somersets came under intense machine gun fire as soon as they got beyond their own wire. German bullets whizzed around them, thudding into the ground and causing heavy losses. Mixed companies managed to advance past the German support trench, but were held up by events to their right. The 4th Middlesex, moving to the right of the Somersets, had been decimated almost instantly. On rising to attack, this battalion became the target for no less than six machine guns. Of the 700 men who began the attack, only 100 made it across no man's land. Once in the German system, the CO attempted a headcount, but found his force had been withered. Of the 100 survivors, only half were in any sort of condition to fight. The wounded were left behind, while the able-bodied fought their way forward. The most terrible fate 
would befall the 10th West Yorks, which advanced just north of the Tambor. Because a direct assault on Fry Corps was not to take place until later in the day, those units stationed south of the Tambor were not due to attack. This meant that the 10th Yorks had no troops to protect their right flank. The 10th Yorks were set the task of capturing the main road connecting Fry Corps to Cantonmaison. Initially, the attack went well, as the overcramped Germans were slow to emerge from their dugouts. The Yorks won the race to the parapet, overrunning the defenders and getting to within grenade distance of Red Cottage. The Red Cottage was a German strongpoint 300 meters behind the front. A former textile factory, the cottage now served as the central position to three interlocking trenches, which connected the defenses north of Freikorps. The Germans had at least one machine gun situated in its ruins in addition to 12 more MGs distributed in the various nooks around it. The Germans defending Red Cottage were about to become benefactors of a crucial British oversight. Since Horn had not planned to attack Freikorps directly, the Germans could redirect their machine guns to face the 10th Yorks, and since one of the Tambor mines had not exploded, they had an unobstructed view of the British approach. Just as the 10th York support companies began their assault, the Germans caught them in a deadly crossfire. The first two waves were practically annihilated, with only small groups making it to the German front trench. One of the survivors was Lieutenant Philip Howe, whose small force would hold out in the German trenches for most of the morning. Using grenades to beat off counterattacks, Howe's men would eventually meet up with more 10th York survivors, in addition to several other men from mixed units. Together, they would secure most of the trenches north of their position, but in the end, would be forced back out when their supplies ran low. Upon returning to the British front line, Lieutenant Howe learned a somber truth, that of these 750 men from the 10th Yorks, only 40 or so remained, a casualty rate in excess of 90%. However, this nightmarish scenario which befell the 10th Yorks but only pale in comparison to what happened next. If the situation north of Freikorps was bad, things would get much worse in the center. As you'll recall, a direct assault on the village was not to commence unless ordered. Horn's attack plan detailed that if Freikorps fell before a direct assault was necessary, the center units would then occupy the village. But if not, they would attack it later in the day. The unit given this task was the 7th Yorkshire Battalions, consisting of the 7th Green Howards. The Green Howards were an old formation, with roots dating back to 1688. On July the 1st, the Green Howards were stationed in front of Freikorps, and were under strict orders not to move unless ordered to do so. What happened next has confounded historians ever since. The commanding officer of the Green Howards' A Company, Major Ralph Kent, had watched the main attack and all seemed to be going well. For reasons still unclear, Major Kent defied orders, and at 7.45am, instructed his company to attack the village. This was completely contrary to the plan, and the battalion CO had no idea that Kent had gone in early. When word got back that A Company had attacked without orders, it could only be assumed that Kent had gone mad. Perhaps Major Kent did suffer a mental breakdown, or perhaps he felt the Germans were killed. 
In any event, his decision to attack without authorization had predictable results. A single machine gun outside Freikorps scythed down most of the men within 20 meters of their own trench. Within minutes, 108 of its 140 men had become casualties, and the attack crumbled. Major Kent himself was wounded in the battle. To this day, we are no closer to unraveling this mystery. Kent never explained on record why he had given such a premature order, and probably no one outside his family and friends were told the truth. It remains one of the most ghastly events to unfold on this brutal day, an entire company wasted for an attack which should never have taken place. Today, the location of the Green Howard sacrifice is marked by the Fry Corps Bridge Cemetery, a small cemetery just south of the village along the main road. 89 men of the Green Howards are said to be buried in a large shell hole which is now the center of the cemetery. The fighting around Freikorps would rage throughout the morning. By early afternoon, the village would be flanked from north and south, although the defenders would hold firm and continue to take heavy toll on the attackers on either side. Watching the battle unfold was Siegfried Sassoon, whose position atop a nearby hill gave him an excellent vantage point. The 29-year-old Sassoon later recalled what he saw, writing that, quote, there were about 40 casualties on the left. Others lay still in the sunlight, while the swarm of figures disappeared over the hill. Freikorps was a cloud of pinkish smoke. Lively machine gun fire on the far side of the hill. By noon, no one to be seen in no man's land, except the casualties halfway across. End quote. From Sassoon's vantage point, he could see only one aspect of the battle. What he did not know was that further east the assault on Mametz was making significant headway. 7th Division's task was to capture the village of Mametz, and thus threaten Freikorps from the southeast, helping in the plan to force the Germans out of that village. 7th Division had attacked with two brigades, the 20th on the left-hand side, and the 91st on the right. We'll start with the 20th. 20th Brigade consisted of the 9th Devonshires and the 2nd Border Regiments, who attacked at 7.30 that morning. Their assault was preceded by four small mines, which were detonated near a fortified machine gun post dubbed the Shrine, which was marked by a crucifix in the village cemetery. The Shrine has since become associated with one of the best-known stories of the first day of the psalm. Prior to the attack, Captain Duncan Lennox Martin of the 9th Devonshires had made a plasticine model of the battlefield and correctly predicted that his battalions would suffer heavily from the machine guns stationed at the shrine. It is worth noting that 20th Brigade was not attacking towards Mametz. They were actually heading in the direction of Fry Corps at an angle. This meant that the Devonshires' right flank would be exposed to enfilade fire from the shrine as they cut across. Martin's predictions were soon vindicated. On the morning of July the 1st, the 9th Devonshires were positioned behind the small wood of Mamsel Copse. Their direction of attack had them exit the copse from its right-hand side. No Man's Land was 400 meters away, and from Mamsel Copse, the ground sloped down into a valley. So as the Devonshires topped the rise and descended, they would be in full view of any German who survived the bombardment. In a last-ditch effort to amend the attack order, 
Captain Martin appealed to his commanding officer, but his pleas were ignored. He was told that the bombardment would flatten the shrine, and allow the Devonshires to attack without opposition. Defeated, Captain Martin had no choice but to return to his company and prepare for the assault. Around this same time, another Devonshire took out his notepad and began to write a poem. This soldier was 23-year-old Lieutenant William Hodson, a bombing officer whose task was to help clear enemy trenches using grenades and other handheld explosives. Like Captain Martin, Lieutenant Hodson feared the machine guns at the shrine and knew that unless the artillery had done its job, any attack would end in failure. On the night of June the 29th, Hodson wrote a poem entitled Before Action, in the last verse of which, Hodson prophesied his coming death. The final verse of Before Action reads as follows, quote, I, that on my familiar hill saw with uncomprehending eyes a hundred of thy sunsets spill, their fresh and sanguine sacrifice, ere the sun swings his noonday sword, must say goodbye to all of this. By all delights that I shall miss, help me to die, O Lord. End quote. When the 9th Devonshire is attacked on the morning of July the 1st, Martin and Hodson were proven correct. From the moment their first lines entered no man's land, they suffered from a devastating machine gun barrage, their movement being completely exposed to direct fire. Just as the sun swung its noonday sword, the Devons could see the fire scything towards them. As Martin Middlebrook described hauntingly in his book, The First Day of the Psalm, Men could hear the German machine guns. They could see farther along their wave, comrades falling silently into the grass or crying out as bullets struck home. They suffered a variety of emotions, from astonishment and anger to numbness or absolute terror, but few wavered. After only 10 minutes, all of the Devon's officers and many of the men had been cut down. Captain Martin and Lieutenant Hodson were among the dead. The attack of the 9th Devonshires is one of the most notorious advances of any British unit on July the 1st. Today, the Devonshire Cemetery is one of the most popular sum locations, and is situated on the old front line at the edge of Mansell Copse. Captain Martin and Lieutenant Hodson are buried there, along with 163 other men from the Devonshire Regiment. As you enter the cemetery from the steps leading to the gate, a stone memorial on the left-hand side proclaims the eternal words, The Devonshires held this trench. The Devonshires hold it still. The Devonshires' attack, like those of the 10th West Yorks and 7th Green Howards, has been remembered by history as a senseless waste. The prophetic warning of Martin and Hodson remain a potent testimony to the incompetence of British leadership. Having retold these events, it is easy to arrive at this same conclusion, but we need to be careful not to lose sight of the larger picture. Elsewhere, the attack of Metz was progressing smoothly. To the right of the Devonshires, the 91st Brigade proved to be far more successful. As their attack developed, the first battalions to achieve a break-in were the first South Staffs. Their advance was aided by two mines which sheared off sections of the German-held spurs. Although the staffs took heavy counterfire as they approached, they succeeded in capturing a number of German prisoners, 
before being held up just outside Mametz at 7.45 a.m. Fortunately, the staffs were not alone. To their right, the 22nd Manchesters, who formed the right arm of the pincer, had advanced alongside them. The Manchesters had broken into the German fortress, fighting their way towards the village one dugout at a time. After securing a number of positions, they began to press on to the German second line. As they moved between the trenches, the Manchesters took heavy fire from a nearby redoubt, pinning them in the middle of an open field. Machine gun fire swept across the line, causing significant casualties. Luckily, the Manchesters were able to take cover in the tall grass, which protected them from the bullets whizzing just centimeters above their heads. The Manchesters found it impossible to move. Crawling was their only option. They could not even fire their rifles, as propping themselves on their elbows invited bursts of machine gun. In the meantime, all they could do was sit tight and hold for reinforcements. Unlike the Ulsters at Teepfell, or the 51st Midlanders at Gumcor, reinforcements would soon arrive. With the South Staff stuck outside Mametz, 7th Division Commanding Officer, Major General Herbert Watts, ordered a renewed bombardment on the village. Watts had tried this twice before, once at 9.30am and again at 12.25pm. The earlier shelling had little effect, but after several hours of intense fighting, German reserves had concentrated in the area. Watts's third attempt that afternoon would do the trick. This renewed bombardment shattered German unity, cleaving off the flanks and leaving the center party spread thin. The pinned-down Manchesters were able to take advantage and rush the redoubt. As they did, their support battalions of the 2nd Queen's Royals linked up with them and surrounded the redoubt. For the next few hours, Heavy fighting took place as the Manchesters and Royals inched deeper into the redoubt. Then, at 2.30pm, the tragic pattern which had befallen the British was suddenly broken. Henry Horn ordered phase two of his plan, a direct assault on Fry Corps. It was a gamble which could very well have ended in disaster. But for a change, something went right. At 3.30pm on July the 1st, four British companies, two from the 2nd Royal Warwicks and two from the 8th Devonshires, attacked Mametz. For the exhausted Germans, this proved too much. White flags were soon seen among the ruins of the village, and surviving pockets emerged from their dugouts, their faces smeared with dirt and ears bleeding from ruptured eardrums. By 4pm, Mametz was in British hands. The combined weight of the Warwicks, Devons, South Staffs, Queens, and Manchesters poured into the village, securing houses, cellars, and dugouts. Still, there was danger throughout. Pockets of resistance would hold out until nightfall, using grenades and snipers to catch the British off their guard. In the end, raiding parties were able to root out their resistors and by dusk were able to confirm that Mametz was liberated. 600 German prisoners were pulled from the rubble, wireless stations were set up, and wells were cleared to ensure fresh water. As the sun began to set on that terrible day, British infantry searched Mametz for souvenirs, while detailing parties began the grisly task of collecting the wounded and dead. In all, 
The capture of Mametz had cost 7th Division 3,380 officers and men, the vast majority from machine gun fire. Those who survived were relieved to have seen out the day, but also felt immense pride by what they had accomplished. Staring out from the newly captured positions, the guns could still be heard thundering away in the distance, but in Mametz, all was quiet. Despite the terrible toll it exacted, 7th Division had completed its July 1st objective, and in contrast to events elsewhere, this must be seen as a success. The fighting had been no less terrible, but for the inexperienced BEF, it represented a major victory. A victory which is often forgotten when we think about the first day of the Somme. Unfortunately, the capture of Mametz was tainted by two subsequent events. In securing Mametz, 7th Division had let a big opportunity slip by. What they did not know at the time was that the German resistance on the whole frontage east of Freikorps to be on Montauban had broken down. The soldiers occupying Mametz were too exhausted to press the advance, and there were no fresh troops at hand. Most historians agree that had there been a continued push that evening, it is likely a major breakthrough could have been achieved. It would take until July the 4th before fresh reserves could press towards Mametz Wood. 7th Division would be relieved by the 38th Welsh Division on the night of July the 4th, and it was the 38th Welsh Division which would make the effort to secure Mametz Wood, a week-long struggle which would claim the lives of 4,000 Welshmen, many of whom were seeing combat for the first time ever. Yes, the Battle of Mametz was over, but elsewhere the fighting continued to rage. To the east, the Germans clung bitterly to Freikorps. In an ironic twist, the assault designed to capture Freikorps ended up delivering Mametz instead. Without dwelling on these events, it is suffice it to say that they did not go well. The key issue was the seven-hour delay between attacks. The battalions leading the assault, the remaining Green Howards and 7th East Yorks, had spent the day awaiting orders in the broiling heat. They were sunburnt, exhausted, and above all, sick and terrified. With Major Kent's tragic misstep that morning, the Green Howards were already under strength, and the East Yorks fared no better. 400 men from these battalions were killed in the afternoon attack, which achieved little. In all, 21st Division lost 4,256 men and officers on July the 1st. Had Mehmet's not been taken, Freikorps could have been another Tiepval. The key difference being that by the end of July the 1st, the German grip on Freikorps had become untenable. The Germans would evacuate the village overnight, leaving only a token force behind. On the morning of July the 2nd, a fresh assault by the 17th Division would deliver Freikorps, but pressing beyond proved more difficult. The copses, woods, and spurs which dominate the area delayed the British at every turn. If by abandoning Freikorps, the British assumed the Germans had lost the will to fight, they would be sorely mistaken. It would be a long, long trail ahead. I'm going to end off this week with a housekeeping note. In episode 52, part 1, I had said that part 5 would be our wrap-up slash assessment episode. But since I can't do math properly... I've decided to stretch things out to one more day. So part 5 will now concern the British attack on Montauban, along with a discussion of the French efforts in the south. Because we must never forget 
that the French fought on the Somme as well. This means that our final installment of July the 1st will be 52 Part 6, not Part 5 as previously stated. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to thank a most recent donor, Mitch Herngehair from the great state of Alaska. Thank you very much for your donation, Mitch. If you are enjoying the show and want to make a donation, you'll find the donate button up on the homepage. Donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a five-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been part four of episode 52 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.